body language, eye contact, pace of speech, really letting someone speak and then actively listening. These are things that allow people to hear themselves. And oftentimes, I think what people are really wanting when they're in conversation is to hear themselves. And so I think when you give someone that opportunity, it allows them to disarm considerably and then participate maybe in a way that they typically would not. Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Izzy Grinspan, Deputy Style Editor at The Cut. In this podcast, we talk to ambitious women about how they've come this far and where they're going next. So I have two kids. I was lucky enough to have two pretty easy births. And both times I worked with a doula. And afterwards, I had a moment of like, wait, do I want to be a doula and help women give birth? And I think this is really common. It's one of those jobs like yoga instructor or therapist where it's so easy to fantasize about being that, you know, calm, collected person who comes into someone's life at a really intimate moment and just helps them. But it's hard to be a professional nurturer. It's really hard to do, and it's hard to make it a viable career path. Erica Chidi-Cohen, my guest today, has a history of making it look easy. She literally wrote the book on the topic. Her 2017 birthing guide is called Nurture. Erica went from doula-ing to becoming a women's health and sexual education entrepreneur, running a space called Loom in L.A. with classes about everything from sex to childbirth to periods. It's soon to relaunch as a digital space, and Erica has raised $3 million to fund it, which is really remarkable because, as Erica's explained on her Instagram, only point. 0.6% of venture dollars goes to black female CEOs. Erica and I talked recently about how she does what she does, how to balance sex and health education, these incredibly intimate topics with turning on your business brain and working with VCs in order to get a company off the ground. Listen on for our conversation. You have moved through all these different phases in your career. How do you you know when it's time to make the leap? And how do you get the courage to be like, all right, I'm going to go do this new thing? You know, I, that's a really great question. I think for me, if I sit and I think about it, I think knowing when to move on for me looks like frustration with no relief. I really consider myself to be kind of like a Swiss army knife. Like I'll just like whip out you know, this thing, that thing, that thing to figure out if there's a way to re-engineer, reverse engineer to, to get to a solve that works. When that doesn't happen after a couple tries, I'm, I'm very comfortable leaving something and going to do the next thing. But it's not like for me, there's a difference between like exhaustion and frustration, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you're exhausted, you're just, kind of like, I need a break, I need a level set, I might need to call in some support or some tools. And then when you do those things, there's a bridge and you can kind of keep going. And that, you know, that high energy comes back, that clarity comes back, there's traction. That is definitely what I look for when I'm like, things are going 
in the direction they need to go and just stick with it. For me, frustration is that you, you hit exhaustion, you bring out the tools, you build the bridges, but you're just not getting traction. And that's really for me when it's time to pivot or iterate. So it sounds like some of it is trusting in your ability to be that Swiss army knife and to have the skills to fix the problems and to know that moment when you're like, it's not me, it's the job or it's the field or whatever. Yeah. It's just, you know, when you call in or utilize those tools to try and help deal with the exhaustion component and you still don't feel met for me, that's when we're in frustration. And I think as a woman living in a black body, I have to really like right side is how much frustration and exhaustion I'm comfortable with being exposed to because just my general existence is intensely stressful. So I think that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, that was a great answer. I'm going to think about this with army knife metaphor. I think that's a really good one. Um, Okay, so with Loom, can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? And also, okay, these are two really big questions. But one is how did they come about? How did it come about? And then the other one is where is it going now? Yeah, Loom is a very interesting creature. And, you know, when my co-founder and I, Quinn Lundberg, kind of came together around starting it, I think our shared understanding was that most women are operating from a knowledge deficit about their bodies. And at the time where we really saw that knowledge deficit magnified was around pregnancy and postpartum. It was a very stagnant industry that hadn't had much innovation. It still was highly feminized, very parentified or parental in terms of how the information was being disseminated. It was very dogmatic and polarized. You either did this or that or the other thing. There wasn't a lot of elasticity around it. So that's really where we dug in first. And while I was writing my book, which very much informed a lot of the ethos around Loom, the feeling was that there is no one way or right way to do it. And that what women really need is this evidence-based cornucopia of information around how their bodies function and that they, through an introduction to that information, can make the best decision for themselves, whatever that decision is going to be. And truly, I think our focus with Loom is to shift the culture around sexual and reproductive health for women and also to really highlight the fact that health education is an underutilized healthcare intervention, especially right now in the pandemic where a lot of healthcare is moved to a telemedicine platform, meaning that a lot of your appointments with your care provider are educational appointments, they're ed appointments. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I brought up the word, you know, paternalistic, and I haven't said the word patriarchy yet, which is really shocking for me. It's usually like two minutes of conversation. I'm like, (laughs) um, you know, paternalistic framework and a patriarchal framework 
are really the two main reasons why sexual reproductive health education hasn't kind of gotten the airtime and the space that it's needed because there's this feeling, one, when we think about the paternal component, the idea that the kind of care provider and this like kind of all-seeing, all-knowing, kind of unidentifiable entity knows everything about your body and you don't need to know anything. You should just show up and like have the experience and then that's where you need to be. And I think when we were building Loom, the idea is like that idea disables women. It doesn't Mm -hmm. allow them to feel a sense of empowerment in their body. And then the patriarchal component is really this culture that we live in where men rule, create, iterate, and develop the architecture. And women are not allowed to be a part of that development. And patriarchy really is based on the idea that women are quiet and women don't need to know more than they think they need to know. And men aren't really interested in the actual functioning and optimization of the female form or body. So those two things work together to really be a vice where women are just squeezed and squeezed and squeezed without any release or relief. And so I think we really see Loom as the, you know, kind of the antidote to that, like unwinding the vice, giving women more and more information and space to really understand their bodies and through that be able to live really full expansive lives and like I said in the beginning we were focusing on pregnancy and postpartum as the space where we saw the knowledge deficit you know very clearly but realized that it was throughout the full continuum of sexual reproductive health so we are looking to dismantle and to like replenish and erase that deficit through fertility, birth control, sex and pleasure, periods and menopause, uh, miscarriage and abortion, because all of those experiences can happen in one person. And there's no need to kind of create this compartmentalization where like if you're learning about sex, you shouldn't be learning about periods or if you're learning about birth control you shouldn't be learning about menopause like there should be a continuum of learning just like there is actually a continuum of that physiological experience so we started off as a brick and mortar where loom is going is into the digital world and we're building a platform that is going to focus on delivering a innovative digital education experience around sexual reproductive health. And we're starting off with pregnancy and postpartum as our two subjects that we'll be launching uh, early next year. And from there rolling out into other subjects within the sexual reproductive health continuum. So is it gonna be all digital? Mm -hmm. It's going to be all digital. I think that's what's really exciting right now is about building this digital health education platform. I think that's where everything is going. Education's the ground floor. And uh, it's a really kind of a beautiful thing to see that happening throughout the world of medicine, not just uh, in the world that I'm sitting in. And I think it's going to be a really exciting couple of years from here in terms of just how people are able to develop more ownership as a result 
of the pandemic in some ways too, because I think the pandemic in many ways kind of pushed us back into our bodies in this very aggressive kind of assaulting way. But now that we're here, there's this opportunity to really, again, right size what that exploration and that reconnection can look like. And my hope is for women that it's really wanting to dive in and learn more about their sexual reproductive health because it's a vital sign. It's such a vital part of our, of our lived experience. I could see a digital platform working really well here too, just because it's like, there's a certain kind of intimacy that you can get in digital spaces and, and a way to talk about things that people might be like awkward about face to face or, or live. Um, but people can talk about anything online. Like I could see there being some real freedom there. So let me ask you about how the fundraising went. Um, you raised $3 million, right? It did. How'd it go? How did you do it? What was it like? Yeah. I Fundraising is a fascinating and intense process. The actual term that's used in the industry is a process. You're running a process when you are fundraising. So, you know, honestly, oddly, I really enjoyed it, which I know anyone who's ever fundraised before is going to be like, what? But I enjoyed it because I also love challenges. (laughs) I like doing things that are said to be hard uh, and then doing a good job at it. I think that is a cultural thing for me. I feel like Evos are very industrious um, and (laughs) hardworking. And so I've just, I think that's, that was the approach I took to it. And also I, at the time when I went out to fundraise, didn't know the, really shocking statistics around Black CEOs or Black female founders, uh, let alone Black gay founders. And I I knew the female, like the women's statistics around how hard it is to fundraise. But I think if I had known the statistics for Black female CEOs to fundraise, it probably would have put me off. And I, I, I wasn't someone who was very clear also about raising venture from the beginning of the business. Again, I think something to keep in mind for anyone that's thinking about fundraising, it's really important to develop a relationship or a connection. And mine happened by accident. It wasn't something I was actively looking for, but a very close friend of mine, Kat Schneider, who is the founder and CEO at Ritual, Uh, her and I met through a friend many years ago at the very nascent stage of both of our businesses. And she was the one who firstly had a VC background and said to me, you should raise venture. And I remember when she said it to me, I was, I was curious about it. I was like, you think so? And she was like a hundred percent. And so it was her ability to see that in me which is something I might not have seen in myself. And then also using her access and privilege as a white bodied person to create access points for me and create those initial introductions for me to start feeling out what the process could look like. 
And, you know, an introduction only goes so far, you know, you then have to level up and start doing the things that you have to do to, um, to get to that next, that next step. But, you know, I think, I think that's, that's really what I would say is so important around fundraising is just having a network and having some visibility into how the process works. And uh, yeah, also just know that your deck is never done. <laughs> I wish someone had told me that. And, and what I mean by that is you will probably do like 15 to 30 different iterations on your pitch deck. And if you know that going in, you won't care. But if you don't know that going in, <laughs> you will get frustrated. <laughs> or I will say you will get exhausted as I expressed earlier, exhausted versus, versus frustration. Like it will get exhausting and you'll need to keep kind of toying at it. With the VCs you were talking to, like, I don't know, you picture a VC, like this is a terrible stereotype, but I'm just picturing entirely dudes. Like, were you, all, were you pitching to women as well? I was pitching to women and to men and mm. maybe non-binary people. I, right, right. I didn't get a lot of clarity always in the room, but yeah it's definitely still very much a male-dominated space with a lot of female-led, women-led VC funds that are there. And um, not only was it mostly men with, you know, a a sizable smattering of women, but it was also mostly white people, you know, except one of our major investors, Charles Hudson over at Precursor, he's amazing and again it's just I think and I use the term right size a lot but it's all about right size of what your funnel needs to look like really understanding who it is that you want to talk to first is really important as well because you kind of want to work from back to front when it comes to fundraising you want to go to who you think is probably going to say yes first and then work your way back from there as opposed to just being like I'll talk to anybody I think even if you're really early on taking meetings with anyone and pitching doesn't always work in your favor sometimes it's better to be really selective and to find you know people that you're not necessarily officially pitching to but other people to help fine-tune your pitch so that when you go out you're able to really be really rigorous about how many meetings and who you're talking to. I, this is like the thing I've been wondering. This moving from business brain to the sort of educator brain to, I don't know how much or at all if you've been actually doing the like baby delivering do the work recently, but those are really, really different skills and world, really different worlds. How do you find moving in between them? Well, firstly, I love that you asked this question. Um, because what most people don't realize, and I laugh, I was laughing about it the other day um, with, with my team, is that while I was fundraising, I was still doing births. That's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's also wild because <laughs> it's, you know, they're two completely different worlds, but then they're also kind of the same. And it was interesting when I was running the process, you know, there'd be calls sometimes at all hours of the day. Sometimes someone would want to jump on a quick call at like eight o'clock at night or send you an email at 11 PM. And I was like, Oh, this is what it's like 
when someone's going into labor. I'm talking to them at all hours of the day. Sometimes they're waking me up at 2 a.m. Maybe I'm leaving my house, maybe I'm not. Um, and so there was definitely some transferable skills that were there. Uh, I officially retired from births at the beginning of this year in February. My last clients were um, COVID parents and I supported them virtually and then uh, very uh, softly withdrew myself from that uh, role of a, of a care provider. Uh, but yeah, this idea of business brain and kind of birth or, you know, sexual reproductive health educator brain, there's definitely some code switching. But what's interesting is, like I said earlier, I'm obsessed with the human condition. And I kind of see everyone living in kind of the same crucible, right? Everybody has kind of the same need sets. People want to be heard. People want to feel like they're helping. People want to feel like they're being helped. Uh, and, you know, the, and then the other piece is, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty high kind of emotional intelligence and emotional curiosity, which again is a skill that slides really nicely left to right. Like you can, it, it doesn't matter what environment you're in, that skill really tracks. And then I'm I'm also just a nerd and that's the other component like I you know I love I love numbers I love data I love reading and I just am such a curious person and so I think I think that's why I can kind of sit in a lot of different places because when I show up in whatever world I'm in, I'm very much not coming in with this top down, oh, I know this and here's what I'm bringing. I'm always really leaning back a little bit and just taking a strong temperature and listening out for what I don't know. And then very much like water flowing through a crack, like I'll just come in where it feels like it's a good place for me to come in. So I think it's this... Yeah, it's this combination of just being a good observer and then a good operator. Those two things kind of work well together. I have two kids and my first birth, uh, the doula also worked at a hedge fund and she had a deal where she was like working at her hedge fund and then she'd get a call and she'd run to the hospital and she'd cleared it with her boss. And she said that she, it was like, it felt like a break to her. Like it, it allowed her to like, yeah, jumping back and forth with these things, but um, she sounds amazing. Oh my god, she was such a she was such a badass, and it was so inspiring. I was like, this woman is so cool. I like, I'm gonna be really great at this birth because I feel very inspired by her. So I wanted to ask you about building trust and building that sort of place of intimacy because so much of what you do involves asking people to place trust in you and to be comfortable with these like really intimate things. And people have such a different range of like, I mean, you'd mentioned at the beginning, hand washing your underwear. Like I feel like they're culturally, some people are so comfortable talking about their bodies and some people are so scared, you know? So how do you get people to open up or to feel that feel comfortable in that place? I think some of it is about how I show up in the physical space. So I, I talked about being a good observer and being a good operator and how those two things go hand in hand. You know, we're no longer in the 
IRL world right now, everything is digital. But when we were in that pre-pandemic space, you know, body language, eye contact, pace of speech, really letting someone speak and then actively listening to them, meaning repeating back what they're saying, not filling up every gap in the conversation with words. These are things that allow people to hear themselves. And oftentimes, I think what people are really wanting when they're in conversation is to hear themselves. And so I think when you give someone that opportunity, it allows them to disarm considerably and then participate maybe in a way that they typically would not. And, you know, when someone would come into a class that I was teaching, whether that was a pregnancy class or a periods class or a sex class, I already knew because they were there that there was a mutual buy-in. They're here to explore. And it's my job is to make that exploration process as smooth and as individuated as possible, even though this is a group class setting. And so, so those are the things that I think help create that kind of instant sense of trust and intimacy is really compounding those pieces, the body language, the spaciousness, the active listening, and, and a willingness, you know, I think it's, it, it's a willingness. And I, I think it, again, stems back to like, I am actually really interested in other people. And most people don't feel that from other people. There's a lot of self reflexivity, which is not a net negative or net positive. It's just a reality. And so when you're with someone and you break away from that self-orientation or self-reflexivity and really give them a conscious and maybe also unconscious green light that like I am actually wanting to you know step into your world I think it's kind of revelatory for people you know and so that that's I feel like I've had the opportunity to do that definitely in all of the doula work I've done whether it's supporting someone you know through an abortion or supporting someone through uh their pregnancy it's just I show up and I take up just the right amount of space. And um, I think that's something that doulas do really well, but I also think it's something that black women do really well. We just understand like, this is how much space there is. And we really optimize that space. One sort of follow-up question is it sounds to me like, like some of this, to you and and tell me if I'm interpreting it wrong, but it sounds like some of this to you feels like maybe innate, like something that you just were born being able to do. And some of it seems like a deliberate skill that you've worked on. And I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit, like how much of this is like you setting out and thinking, I want to be good at this and how much of this is uh, just, this is naturally who you are. I think it's a mix of both. You know, I would describe myself as a trauma survivor and I had a lot of, intense experiences 
within my family of origin and beyond. And so I think when you grow up with a lot of trauma, there are multiple response potentials, right? Or there are multiple response pathways that you can go down. And I think one of the pathways for me was building my intuition and really building a strong felt sense of myself and of others. Some of that out of survival, if I know this room really well, if I connect with this person really well, especially from a child perspective, then this person will help keep me safe and I will continue to go on in my life. Uh, but as an adult, I think for me, that initial survival context of intuition building at some point became more about a thriving development of my intuition. And I, I think that, that, is that that's the innate component. The innate component is really trusting, trusting myself and trusting my intuition. And, you know, when it comes to being really good at something or working really hard to be really good at something, I think when you have a really strong base of intuition, then I think everything else requires exertion, but there's a lot of joy in it. And so I would say that for me, it's a balance of this innate, these innate skills, but then also this joyous process of continuing education. You know, I think that's, I, I, lo I love to learn. I would actually go as far as to say, I live to learn. That is the innate part, but then I work at the learning, if that makes sense. Thank you so much for your time and for all these answers. This was great. This was terrific. In Her Shoes is edited and produced by Brandon McFarland. Our lead producer is B.A. Parker. Stella Bugby and Nishat Kurwa are the show's executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com backslash subscribe. I'm Izzy Grinspan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>